to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. This podcast is brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I am your host, Asia Dorsey. Episode four, Transportation and Infrastructure Justice. I have to do this work holistically. I have to take it to the root. If you were looking for me to talk just about buildings and roads and everything, they come from somewhere and they start up here. It's an imagination, it's a, it's a mind exercise to think about how am I going to get from point A to point B. For me, flat out, it just means, okay, well, how do we make sure folks belong where they are? How do we make things just? How do we make sure everybody gets to participate? And then how do we make things so that they're better in the future? So that's, that's what urbanism is for me. Transportation and infrastructure justice is an important element of the movement for reparations. Given this country's history of bisecting and destroying communities of color through construction of highways, light rail, and other transportation systems. Now, generations later, Black urbanists are bringing a reparative lens to urban planning that literally heals the scars of racism in urban cities undoing decades of structural exclusion. Repairing what's broken requires both an understanding of current transportation and infrastructure policy, as well as grounding in an Afrofuturist vision of what's possible. Our guest today is Kristen Jeffers, founder and editor-in-chief of The Black Urbanist, a multimedia platform exploring the urbanist movement. Kristen centers urbanism at the intersection of Black queer feminist theory. Welcome, Kristen, to Healing Black Futures. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Yes. I first read about your work and it was so inspiring to come across the podcast series that you did looking at really all of these infrastructures or all of these intersections in public planning that was really, really unique. So I'm, I'm just so happy to have you here today. To open up the show, can you tell us what is urbanism? For me, it's really just the bringing together of ideas. It's this conglomeration, ideas coming together, communities coming together, people coming together. Instead of just doing everything separately, doing everything more spread out, it's bringing together. Of course, a lot of my colleagues, they assign a certain form to it. It has to look a certain way. That layer of urbanism also gets layered on gentrification because oftentimes, at least in our modern world, when a city or a civilization is developing itself or they're developing a new like village-like area, all those things cost money. And a lot of the folks who buy into these different environments need to make money off of this concept of urbanization. So say if they're doing it on a vacant lot in a major city, and sometimes the people who were there before pushed away. So there's that displacement element. And then there's that literal what we are putting here needs to cost more than what was here before because we need to make money off of it. That's not an urbanism to me. I understand the logic behind it, but if we're all coming together with different ideas, bodies, spirits, and we want to want this to be a good thing to do, well, how do we make sure everybody gets to participate? How do we use that privilege that we have? For me, just flat out, it just means, okay, well, how do we make sure folks belong where they are? 
Hmm. How do we make things just? And how do we affirm those who have so many intersections? How do we affirm that those intersections are valid? And then how do we make things so that they're better in the future or they generate themselves? So that's that's what urbanism is for me. Yes. I really heard you and I really felt you when you said, how do we make folks belong where they are? Mm -hmm. And with that, I was wondering if you can tell us one of your favorite stories or projects of, of urban renewal. Yeah, there's a lot. I'm really excited that I was able to breathe life into a Black neighborhood in Birmingham, Alabama called Pratt City. About six years ago, I was brought onto a design team to help talk to the neighbors. And I I have this thing where no matter where I'm at, especially in the South, I kind of know who my story people are. Like, I feel like that storytelling notion is something that developed with being specifically a Black person who was descended from those who were enslaved, those who have legacies of the Middle Passage, those who are intermingled and forced as well as some degrees not so forced with those who are already here. Of course, coming from the unceded lands of the creek, being in that point in those unceded lands and building something positive. I insisted there was a market space, had to be a market space. There was a library on the property and it was already being used for weddings, anniversaries. We had a cookout. And so I was like, they need their own event space. They need their own market space. We do this. We, we make our own things to sell, um, especially those of us who have that connection to rural communities. We want to put our goods out there. So fast forward this year, like literally this calendar year, learning about yet another kind of elder, Black elder-led project in Charlotte and the West End. Those of you who may be familiar with like West Charlotte their efforts that were just recently publicized that I had an opportunity to comment on, on building their own co-op grocery store. It's something that was attempted in Greensboro, didn't go so well, but this time I feel like it's going to absolutely happen. And what I like to tell people is that that urbanism starts for me in the grocery store. It starts with being that child taken to the grocery store with my mom. It starts with seeing the grocery store we used to go to, we had to drive to it. We shouldn't have had to drive to it because the building that we, the shopping plaza we lived behind was supposed to have one, but it didn't have one. So that was one thing. Mm-hmm. Then the next story was that the shop, the, the grocery store seemed to get further and further away. And honestly, I have a colleague has a site called groceryterry.com and he's mapped that for Greensboro. Literally like general stores became supermarkets. They spread further and further out. And of course, mm-hmm. cities getting larger cities, becoming more suburbanized. As that trends in the United States, it also trends with certain areas becoming wider, certain areas being restricted, certain areas ignoring the restrictive covenants. In the case of the house that I spent my first nine years in, where they flat out ignored it, sold it to my parents. Anyway, it was already illegal, but the history was there that if my parents had been the first owners, they wouldn't have been allowed to be the first owners. Even the housing projects adjacent to the neighborhood I grew up in wouldn't have been allowed to be part of my family's legacy. And the grocery store disappeared when the white families had started to disappear from this neighborhood. Then white families roughly disappeared from the side of Greensboro where this particular grocery chain had these locations and that, that disappeared. And even now, as we see it manifest itself in the D.C. area where I live, it's like 
it doesn't exist in certain parts of, I live in Prince George's County, you know, that there's that reputation of it being the wealthiest black County. This particular chain does not exist as much in Prince George's County, except for a couple key neighborhoods. And we just lost a section of it in DC proper, but yet it's growing in Virginia. So there's all this spatial stuff around grocery stores. So the seed at a black neighborhood is intent on partnering with a very successful, mostly white owned co-op that's been very professionalized. And this co-op is committed to, even as they've grown from just the first original location, they're outsourcing black vendors, black farmers, black makers, black food providers, and they're working with this black community. And they're, we, they were willing to be documented working with this black community to try to build this kind of model successfully. So yeah. I'm just excited that we may be taking back the narrative of black people can't have nice groceries. Black people can't have a decent supermarket. If it's an upscale supermarket, it couldn't be possibly be in a black neighborhood. And that gets beyond just the food quality. Sometimes it's just the if it's a store, like just up the street in Southeast DC, they opened a brand new, like fresh grocer. It had been years, good food market. So it's, this narrative is changing. We're getting better food options. The farmer's markets are coming back and specifically if this partnership really coalesces in North Carolina, it's definitely going to be a big story and a huge model for folks. And that's what's so exciting to me right now that we're 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 reclaiming food and we're reclaiming like the distribution of it as well. Thank you so much for that story. Wow. In your telling, you located us in the different neighborhoods where you exist and where you have existed. You really articulated the importance of like not just food sovereignty, but the ability for makers to have access to markets. You talked about the importance of partnership, especially multiracial partnerships for the betterment of community. And you also described processes of white flight. And I just want to thank you for the richness of your sharing. And how do we design these landscapes to center accessibility? We have to think about things like mobility devices, not as barriers, but as reality. There's something called universal design where there are a lot of people who are thinking like this. Whenever possible, things are on one level, sound systems, ventilation systems, the walls, like if there's signage, signage is in all types of languages. If they're building a stage, you have a performance venue and there's a dedicated space for, if not one ASL person, at least a second ASL person or like sign language person. So just recognizing that if there's a facility and like say adults need to do something there that kids may not need to do, but people may need to bring their kids to the facility while adults are doing something else. There's somewhere and some provision for those children to do something if they can't be involved with whatever the adults are doing. But really just thinking about, especially as a public venue, can anybody access your service if you're supposed to be providing it to the public? And then when it is specifically with transportation, is it all day, every day? Is it covering every street? I know a lot of people get caught up on, well, we didn't, we made all these streets windy and they're not on a grid. At the current moment, are we just adapting for that? Are we saying we're going to provide this service in whatever way it needs to be provided so that people can have a 
non-motor vehicle option. We're, we're going to center those who can't drive at all for any reason, What even if it's just they don't want to drive that night or whether they can't physically operate a vehicle. So the, really just, once again, can anybody belong here? Can anybody get here? Can anybody feel comfortable here? Especially if you claim to be for the public. I think about the the rich history of urban planning being designed to specifically limit and cause harm to poor bodied folks. And especially the concern of our podcast is Black people and Black bodies. And I'm really curious about how the history of racist urban planning, rather that be the use of transportation and infrastructure projects to cut through Black communities, or even what you described earlier, white flight. I'm wondering how universal design and accessibility can be used to begin to remedy some of the historical harms. I think we have to be ready to be transformative when we do these projects. Like oftentimes, like when projects are done to fix wrong, people want to just maybe put some paint on the street or put what's called in the industry a sharrow. That's literally when you see the person with a bike on the ground and it's an arrow and you're still in the same traffic lane as cars, but you're supposed to share, which is noble. And of course, like me personally, I see a Cheryl, I see a, a cyclist, I'm going to slow down and I'm going to make sure that I can control my vehicle. So this going the same pace, but we've designed roads. So it's very easy for you to kind of not be paying attention and pick up speed. So I would shrink roads down, but I wouldn't shrink roads down without assessing who all is around and doing a full on true environmental assessment. That's why sometimes when we do these projects, it take a long time because doing a full, like talking to everybody in the neighborhood, looking at all these different alternatives, getting enough funding to do that. It was so easy to route these projects in. Sometimes the road was built and then the houses were built around it. And the idea was that we were going to drive everywhere. To repair that kind of development is going to take a heavier lift. One of the first things can happen, honestly, in the housing realm where we decide that we're going to stop seeing housing as this commodity. We're going to take a loss on housing as a income driver. Hmm. We're going to start adding things like town centers, but we're not going to place a premium on the town center. We're going to like say, this is what we should have had in the first place. Hmm. We're going to make these suburbs true towns. We're going to give it a, a town center. We're going to give it human services, or whether it's making some streets people only for certain hours of the day. We're going to make our some of our facilities are going to be smaller instead of assuming that everybody's going to drive to a big box store or this every kid is going to go to one school. We'll make smaller schools and so we'll position them in different areas and we'll make them have multiple uses where it'll be a community center some people will be learning things. All ages will be learning things. We're going to leverage technology as we have through mm-hmm. the pandemic, bringing in virtual elements, bringing in delivery elements. There's a whole body of literature on retrofitting suburbia, which mm-hmm. is worth looking at where they look at, okay, some places where we rebuilt the block and we did it all at once. And we asked the community, okay, who needs housing? 
under the market rate? Who can actually afford to pay this market rate? And let's leverage that. Do you need a grocery store here? Do you need a post office here? Do you need a school or learning center here? Do you need a health clinic here? What do you need for all of this to be successful? And so that's where we break the chain of bad zoning. Like everybody's talking about highway teardown. I've been in community with a lot of those folks. I think we have to be mindful that you can't just take the highway out tomorrow and expect the community to recoalesce the way it had been. To get back to the core of this question, everything you do with replacing and repairing suburban communities has to be holistic. Same with more urbanized communities. And I'm using kind of the language as it's been written, like the more, the people who had this idea, the racists that had this idea that they could like zone out black people, that they could turn, they could say that black people were a nuisance, just like a factory was a nuisance. We're getting away from that. And what we're doing is saying, okay, well, what do we need? We're, we're saying nobody really needs the factory. And then we ask ourselves, well, do we even need to manufacture that? So we get back into more of the environmental sustainability, reusing, recycling, thinking about that element of climate change. So it goes beyond just this building can go here. We ask ourselves, should this building be here? And if we are building new things that are supposed to fix problems, have we made sure that everybody new or everybody old has what they need to stay there, at least through the generational period and a natural decision to lead these regions? Mm, thank you, Kristen. I'm, whew, there is so much that you shared. I'm synthesizing some of the core themes of your sharing. I'm really sitting with your desire for democratic decision makings. I heard you multiple times articulate that when we are doing this repair work and making things right, we got to sit with the community and see what the needs are. Mm-hmm. It's such a bottom up <laughs> approach to thinking about urban planning and design is literally based off of what the needs are, not someone sitting far away telling people what their needs are. I loved the the visionary aspects that you really brought to fore in helping to articulate what some of the processes are. Like we can't just remove highways. People have left and like you said, they had made decisions. People are still having to make decisions. So just because you heal the transportation system doesn't mean those people are still even gonna be there. Wow, you, you touched on so many things we could really untangle each one for hours but I think it's time I'm feeling ready for us to take a journey into the future Yay. are you ready for that <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so there's gonna be a portal we are now in the liberatory and the liberated future where we have healed so many of the harms from the past, things that we never even expected to happen have happened. And what are we seeing when we look out of the window at the urbanism, the urban future, the city of the future? We've taken this back to saying, okay, for one thing, we were on unceded land anyway. So we, right. we've, we've seeded the land back. And so Ooh. depending on the region, ancestors of those who were originally on the lands may give us the charter to do something different. Mm. Others may walk with us. And we want to allow that room for that to happen, specifically those of us who are on unceded territories in the so-called North America and South mm-hmm. America. So what we're seeing is a, a good mix of 
farm and we're bringing food sources, we're bringing back our fibers that clothe us, anything that we can naturally produce close to home, we're producing close to home. So we're seeing greenhouses, we're seeing hydroponics, we're seeing greenery, and then we're seeing people actively finishing those projects. Depending on like the area and the relationship that the ancestors had to the animal community, we may see different versions of processing and use and communing with the animal community, but we definitely are going to see plant matter in all kinds of forms. We're going to be seeing all these food ways and they're going to be out there and then we're going to be honoring people's gifts. So you're going to see people with different configurations of stands and places Like when you open up your bag, you're going to see things to trade with. For me, it would probably be some of my yarn projects that I have finished to bring to this community to offer as an offering. And then they may be handing me back fruits, vegetables that they curated because that's what that person does. And we're not going to get hung up on hair texture. We're going to honor and respect those things. We're not going to tell people we're not seeing those things, but we're going to like not run away from them for it. We will probably notice that our skin tones are different, but we will, and we will honor that history and how we got here. But eventually at a certain point, it won't, it won't hurt to be a certain person and we won't harm people because of what our bodies look like. You're listening to Healing Black Futures. We'll continue our discussion on transportation and infrastructure justice with Kristen Jeffers of The Black Urbanist in just a moment. Welcome back to Healing Black Futures as we continue our conversation with Kristen Jeffers of The Black Urbanist. Thank you. Oh, ah, uh, I'm I'm crying because it was so beautiful. So the, the tears are just it's fine. We're all on this bus, like looking at all the people, and it doesn't hurt to be who you are, and that that is so beautiful. So I have a few questions, and I'm curious, what were some of the challenges that we faced and overcame in getting to this future? Well, we had to reckon with finance. We had to reckon with the fact that people, just because they exist, are worthy of having things. They shouldn't have to work for everything if they have to work for anything at all. We started with universal income. We started with universal health care and we reconfigured what we were spending. So in the days where we still needed like the traditional jurisdictional boundaries, like that intermediate point was okay, we have these jurisdictions, we have these settings, we have this conventional city environment that we created. We first and foremost, we asked if we could even do this on the land that we're on. And and we set a plan to work with the folks that were colonized and forcefully removed from this land. And then we started things like community land trusts. We did these, all these sort of policy implementations and then in the next generation, then all those things bore fruit because we had young people and then young people became adults that understood that we could live in the world differently. We imagine that Pangea magically drew itself back together for those peoples whose ancestors remember or at least had that somatic memory of 
surviving ice ages and surviving climate changes, what did they actually do when there, that was no fault of their own? And mm-hmm. what can we do with the technology that we have? And of course, we had intermediate periods, but as a whole, we're at this point where the entire globe is on the same page and on the same mindset. We're back to our full humanity. Thank you. Thank you for answering that question so eloquently. And also thank you for really expanding and panning out to the global scenes and the global agreements that we had to come to terms to in order to create equity within our sphere. I loved the way that you continuously nod to the fact that we're on unceded territories and the kinds of negotiations that would need to take place. There was one thing that almost crippled our movement. There was one thing that we almost couldn't overcome in order to get here. What was that one thing? And I know that we expanded our vision out globally, but I want to bring us back into the realm of housing and transportation. And so what was the one thing that almost destroyed us? There's so much of our economy that is based on the auto industry. There was this concept that we couldn't do a solar vehicle versus an electric battery vehicle. So we had to use lithium. And so we had to mine somewhere. Some of us couldn't fathom taking a pay cut now or learning how to do different things, learning how to cook different things or be people. Some of us couldn't let go of what we thought God said. Some of us couldn't let go of the need to punish those who did harm in a certain way. They couldn't figure out that people could change, that people could actually be healed mentally and physically. They themselves weren't ready to go through that process of releasing and forgiving. Don't mean to pick on Detroit, but just thinking in that housing and transportation vein, you know, Detroit's our one city that's literally transportation is what drove it. The transportation factories created a migration period. So if there's that barrier specifically around transportation, it's saying, oh, well, we need to save the auto industry. And then because we need to save the auto industry, we can't do this differently. Oh yeah, and the housing industry as well. Like we can't fathom that people don't own houses, like give up your house to make it all public housing. Like that would be the struggle that everywhere would have, but specifically for one big industry, that one region would struggle with both. Thank you. I I got chills multiple times, especially when you said we couldn't let go of what we thought God said. Oh, thinking about manifest destiny and just a lot of the religious sort of underpinnings has caused the world to be the way that it is. And I'm so grateful for you for bringing that up. We are going to travel back through the portal to the present after having experienced such a beloved future. I'm, I'm almost sad. I'm wondering, what was that like for you bringing us into the future? It was healing for me because often lately, especially just seeing an alternative future that doesn't harm in in the route to getting to that future seems so hard. I would say millennials, maybe even folks on either side of our generation, we had that moment where I think we thought we had fixed so many problems, but we're feeling that grief of, okay, we're not quite there yet. So for our final question, we always ask 
what actions can we take right now in the immediate future to bring the liberatory future of transportation and infrastructure and urban planning? What actions can we take? I want everybody to learn how to read their municipal budget, even if it's like a county level budget or it's like a county and a city level. Understand what your taxes are going to, understand why that's happening. There are a lot of cities that are already piloting universal basic income. A lot of cities are piloting free fares on public transit. A lot of cities are reconfiguring their union contracts so that those workers are able to provide services in a fair and equitable way. Somebody has to start the process. And oftentimes when you're making something, you're you're in the woods with like the, the clippers and the machete cutting down the the plants and everything and deciding what to do you're feeling those cuts it's like when harriet was walking through and deciding those paths and when she was cutting those pathways release this idea of who you think your neighbors are and what they may do it's okay to kind of seek out folks that you might be more comfortable with at first but definitely start getting to other folks that they might mention and just if you're here right now I don't know when this will be released. I don't know who will read this. And I don't know how much grief that you're already processing. If you're here right now, if you're in this moment, you took an action to start doing a version of the work. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. And realize that because of your privilege level, there may be some decisions you can make quickly. But don't don't underestimate what you're possible to do. I read something this morning that said this privilege isn't so much about what somebody else doesn't get to do it's like what you get to do that you can do for others if they've asked you so it's a sharing thing it's a giving thing it's a giving and a gratitude and just like we started this episode start asking the questions ask all the hard questions keep asking the questions and let those questions guide them to where they need to go I am breathing in everything that you have shared I'm breathing in your generosity. I'm breathing in all of the the edges and contours, the ideas that you've shared with us. I'm, I'm really breathing in what it means to be literally looking at these intersections as we're moving towards that future. I so appreciate all of the technical language and skills and ideas that you've brought into this podcast, like as a practitioner of urban planning and design, it was just so rich and uplifting. And I just wanted to thank you and all the times I got shivers all over goosebumps, like your word was, was ministry. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share. And (laughs) just one thing I want to leave everybody with, I have to do this work holistically. I have to take it to the root because if you were looking for me to talk just about buildings and roads and everything, they come from somewhere and they start up here. It's an imagination. It's a, it's a mind exercise to think about how am I going to get from point A to point B? Where am I going? And if I'm in charge of putting something together or building something, that's the imagination. That's a manifestation. So thank you all for going on this holistic journey with me. And yes, just like any anything else that you're hearing, it's holistic, but just think holistically around all this urban planning and transportation and infrastructure stuff as well.
Yay. Thank you so much. And we look forward to following your projects. Can you name some of the places where folks can follow you and find you? Go to theblackurbanist.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter. There are several options for newsletters. You can literally search for the Black Urbanist Weekly on Substack. I'm on Medium, Kristen E. Jeffers. Or you can just get it kind of regular old MailChimp. Or I, you can just go over to my website, theblackurbanist.com and click on the newsletter. You can go and follow me at Black Urbanist on Twitter and Instagram. I do have love offerings set up. You can just search my name, Kristen e. Jeffers. I'm on all the little like donation places. I'm on Patreon, Kristen e. Jeffers on Patreon. So if that's something of interest to you. And there's an actual special patron newsletter where I thank you all for your generosity every single week. And I give y'all a little taste of what I'm doing. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Follow Chris, get all the things. I'm on the newsletter. So excited. So we look forward to staying in touch and, and thank you so much. This interview with Kristen Jeffers of The Black Urbanist was conducted by Asia Dorsey and produced by Lottie Lieb Dula for reparationsforslavery.com. Reparative contributions can be made at theblackurbanist.com. Thank you. You've been listening to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I'm your host, Asia Dorsey.